welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Move Daily Health Podcast. I'm Dane Wallace, here again with Freya Spence, and today we welcome to the show Lacey Alana to discuss the topic of movement as a form of therapy. Lacey is a psychotherapist and licensed clinical social worker who sets herself apart by blending her clinical expertise with her passion for improv theater and the aerial arts. She provides one-of-a-kind trainings that fuse interpersonal neurobiology, therapeutic frameworks, business communication, and pedagogy from improv theater and the circus arts to address a wide range of challenges, including eating disorders, mood disorders, anxiety disorders, and trauma symptomology. Our conversation today dives into the nervous system and how we can better access the inner workings of the brain by getting deeper into the physical self. So without further ado, please enjoy the next 50 minutes of conversation with Lacey Alana on episode 44 of the Move Daily Health Podcast. Enjoy. All right. Well, uh, Lacey, welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. No stress. How was uh, how's everything in your neck of the woods with this whole coronavirus nonsense going on? Uh, yeah, it is uh adventurous and different um yeah a lot of things have changed and the world is definitely an interesting place and um I find yeah there's been some really neat things that have come out of this really unusual situation and obviously lots of hard challenging things as well mm-hmm. I was uh saying earlier today it's an adventure in allostasis mm-hmm. yeah that's yep. really what it is right now mm-hmm. <laughs> on the planet, on every person, yep. everything. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, you have a blended, very wide background of skills from psychology to social work and from circus to movement therapy. Can you mm-hmm. give a little insight on in terms of what has led you along this path? Yeah, for sure. I, yeah, it's hard almost to even kind of identify exactly what the pathway was. Like, I think the biggest path is... Um, yeah, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and so I specialize in clinical work and therapeutic intervention and have trainings to be kind of a traditional therapist and can be and do some traditional therapy. Uh, and then along the way, I think what happened for me is that a lot of the things that I was just really interested in and doing already, like circus, um, and also I'm really involved in the improv theater world, both were things that I started recognizing like, oh, there's so much therapeutic benefit to both of these practices and these domains. And so really just kind of in the name of like wanting to lean further into both understanding like what are the actual kind of clinical and therapeutic elements that already exist in these other disciplines and also what are the parts of it that I can harness for therapeutic and clinical benefit. Um, And just they were things that I liked. So I was like, oh, I can try to figure out how to make these things that I like more of my like way that I make my living and things that I spend doing during the day. Yeah. And so it kind of just happened from there. We love that. Uh, We actually know a couple other people who have um, been trying to blend movement into Mm -hmm. their practices, um, like trauma-based, psychology-based and so on. And so it was really neat to to see some of your work. And we'll be honest, like what led us to you was actually that um, over the last couple of years, I was recovering from a pretty traumatic brain injury mm-hmm. and um, like cranial nerve injury. And mm-hmm. I got back to doing some hoop, aerial hoop, mm-hmm. and found that the recovery and 
oh, sorry, I should also say through that process was also introduced the polyvagal theory from one of Mm -hmm. my practitioners, which was uh, profoundly um, enlightening in terms Mm -hmm. of the overall process of recovery. And in that time also had a neurotoxin. So a whole bunch of things were happening all at once. Mm -hmm. But the point Mm -hmm. is like started doing circus and was doing it with the aim of trying to help recover function of my arm and spine and, you know, regain a sense of play because like skill based mm-hmm. training is so huge in terms of what we do. And like, we don't want people to just, you know, sit on a machine or just do sets and reps. Totally. Play is an integral part of who we are as mm-hmm. humans and it can help us recover in terms of movement modalities. But it wasn't until after I had done a few sessions guided by a coach that I started to realize the other sides of what I was experiencing. I was like, holy crow, this is completely mm-hmm. different. Like I was approaching it from a very biomechanical model mm-hmm. and the benefits were far surpassing that just being inverted or right. uh, like the little problem solving, even if I could only do one or two at a time mm-hmm. due to a nervous system. So that's what led us to your work, mm-hmm. specifically the yes and brain model. Mm-hmm. So can you speak to the audience a little bit about your yes and brain model? Um, and how did you even land on that name? Yeah. So yeah, it's the, it's the name of lots of things, my, my company, my email, my website, you know, all of these things. And um, yeah, and it kind of comes, so the idea of yes and um, is something that I borrow from improv theater and sort of the, when we, and it just parallels really nicely kind of into these neuro concepts and therapeutic concepts. So I'll sort of walk you through those pieces. Um, and in improv, the idea is sort of that if people are entering a stage to co-create something together there's a really like deep resonance and deep listening that has to happen and sort of this ability to be connected to where we are and connected to where other people are and this find this flexibility and this spontaneity. And people talk a lot about sort of the idea of yes anding. So somebody makes kind of an initial offer of information, the next person yes ands that by, you know, accepting and acknowledging that and kind of adding to it. And so from there, like I really started seeing the sort of clinical and therapeutic expansion of this sort of idea of yes anding, both in terms of what it means to kind of be deeply resonant and present with other people and responding in a way that is connected to them in kind of an authentic way. And then also what it means to be doing that process internally with ourselves and then kind of pulling the sort of, I use a lot of kind of interpersonal neurobiology frameworks in my work and kind of pulling in these brain pieces of like, what does it mean to yes and ourselves? And how can we be present with the truths of how our bodies and our minds kind of move through the world? And so, yeah, so I talk a lot about kind of being in our yes and brain and what that, what that means to kind of harness that space. And it, it really is kind of the fundamental underlying piece behind all the work that I'm doing, even when I'm outside completely of anything in kind of the theatrical realm, um, in circus and in corporate work and just kind of in a lot of everything. Yeah. So that's kind of the, the history of it. And I think understanding the brain and kind of what the interplay is between our mind and our body gets left out of the picture a lot of times. Like I think there's been an increasing kind of talk about mind body and sort of the pop psych realm, but a lot of times people don't know a lot about their nervous system and some of the kind of basic things that really give us a lot of insight into who we are. So I know that was a little bit, a little bit meandering, but I hope I answered the question. Yeah, no, that was great. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. And 
a little known little known fact about Dana, I guess, to a lot of our, our uh, audience members. I have a bit of a background in, in uh, improv. I was in Queens Players at Queens University, so a lot of sketch comedy and that kind of stuff. And it's mm. what you just said, the yes and me part and how it would apply to therapy or trauma or that mm-hmm. is, and just being present is so interesting because I've never really thought about improv in that way and that you do, if you mm-hmm. get on stage and you have to improvise, you do have to be so present and listen so acutely to what's going mm-hmm. on. And in my experience with improv, it can be very difficult to get out of your anxious brain um, mm-hmm. on stage in that moment and actually be present because you might be worried about, well, what if I don't come up with something? What if it's not funny? What are the mm-hmm. judgments going to be and all of that? And so how that applies to therapy or trauma, I mean, the the carryover is just so accurate and I've never really thought mm-hmm. about that that's really cool yeah totally and it is yeah I, mean, I yeah absolutely and it is cool it's cool that you have that kind of the framework of like knowing this from a personal experience and yeah I think a lot about the that cycle kind of the yes and improv cycle in terms of like I imagine it like a circle which we can't you know we're talking without visuals right now but uh like somebody makes an offer at the beginning and then the next party has to be aware of it so that's deep listening and then it has to be accepted, which doesn't mean agreeing with it, but it means like accepting this is the offer that's been made. And then there has to be an addition of new information. And then that's an offer and it kind of goes forever. And so it's like we're in those cycles all the time where we either are making offers or we're physiologically having a response to something. So our body's making an offer. And then there's some really big kind of divergent pathways where we either are listening to those offers and are aware of them and or we're not and that can be sort of a huge factor in healing and kind of knowing where we are and knowing and kind of understanding these deeper layers of ourselves mm-hmm. well it's interesting too um we really encourage people to be curious about their nervous systems and understanding mm-hmm. like your body wants your highest good mm-hmm. in the sense that it wants to keep you alive even right. though the vernacular around bodies mm-hmm. is generally one of like it's broken it's mm-hmm. up on me and it's like actually that's really that could not be farther from the truth mm-hmm. but on the topic of listening one of the interesting things that I learned in the last couple of years that I had not had exposure to before as far as neurology goes is even just the ability to listen when you are mm-hmm. in a more um, heightened or as as Stephen Porges would call it, like a mobilized state mm-hmm. where you're so traumatized, you cannot even hear what's around you. Um, mm-hmm. Have you experienced that with some of your work in terms of guiding people out of that state where they're just so far gone, they cannot even hear? Definitely. And I, and I think that that is, you know, I, one framework that I'll sort of talk about that'll, I think, make it a little bit easier to talk about this for people that aren't, don't have kind of the framework of knowledge is, um, is the idea of neuroception, which it sounds like you're probably familiar with kind of being familiar with Porges's work. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, and so kind of this idea, I describe it a lot in terms of like, we all have kind of automatic system responses of, you know, if you're startled, your body is going to do the things that bodies do when they're startled. Your eyes may widen, you may even mobilize or move, or you may freeze, you may start sweating, your heartbeat will go up before your brain creates the narrative around like, oh, I'm startled and decides logically, cognitively what it should do, you know, whether it's, oh, that was just my neighbor that I wasn't expecting to run into, or that's a scary person run. Um, And so we're in these kind of states all the time where we're responding and we can end up exactly like you said, in sort of these heightened realms. And I find that 
you know, in an ideal world, a lot of what can be done, particularly through movement, but really any work is sort of beginning to understand like where that window of tolerance is that keeps someone in a space where they can push into growth and expansion and increasing the ability to regulate, but without sort of throwing them in the deep end, because it is hard to, harder to get back from a either a super heightened activated state or a super shutdown state. And there are times that you don't get to make that decision and something happens and neuroceptively you're sort of thrown into that space. And I'd say that the way to sort of come back of that and the experiences that I've had sort of supporting that process depends on the person. Um, But a lot of it does come back to sort of the lower brain regulation, which is where I think a lot of these movement pieces come in, is that if we look at kind of how the brain develops, you know, sort of in the, we've got our lower brain online first that handles the really sort of primitive elements and that is soothed by lots of things that you think of like infants being soothed by and rocking and movement and repetition. And so a lot of times when we're in that state, the thing that people will often try to do for others or themselves is to engage cognitively or to talk someone out of it. And the challenge is, is that when we're in one of those states, we really aren't in touch with that logical part of our brain really at all. And so figuring out like, okay, how can we re-find like a physiological regulation through that state is often really key. And so that may be looking at like, okay, what is the movement state that's happening for someone right now? And how can I give them something that's going to guide them back into a regulated place? So for example, like if someone's in a place of like really rapid kind of frenetic movement, looking for like, okay, are there are there things that I can add in here that will help that movement slow down? Or can I add in a matching or can I add in a game mechanism that might shift that or a mechanism of like, okay, take the brief, deep breath, move the hand. And similarly, if someone's in sort of the frozen immobilized place, which sometimes we can end up in kind of mixed states, looking for like, what are ways that I can gently create pathways to find movement yeah does that kind of answer the question oh yeah absolutely okay cool um like just being able to recognize which kind of spectrum they're existing in but accessing it through movement yeah instead of yeah instead of talking like a lot of I've I've heard the equivalent of like the adult in the room versus the child in the room mm-hmm. and like you really mm-hmm. do need to address those lower brain structures right. are far more like that that toddler that would rather sit on That's a swing it. and swing back and forth. That's it. And exactly. Talk it out. Yeah. Right. Right. And like and finding like what is the pathway to get there because I think we are by the time we hit adulthood a lot of times we've lost some of our play and our movement and our instincts around that. Like you look at kids and it's like kids are generally acting in the way that reflects what their body needs. So you get a kid who's like running around in circles and the adults might just be like, oh my gosh, stop it. This is so annoying. But generally it's like reflective of that kid's trying to meet their needs and there's something adaptive about that movement as a reflection of where they are and these kinds of things. And and we learn to do that as kids really naturally. Mm -hmm. And so figuring out like, what is the way also to sort of walk someone from whatever physiological state they're in to somewhere else because saying like, oh, you're moving too fast, you should slow it down, isn't likely going to work if that movement is connected to a place of activation. Um, Yeah, and so I think a lot about like, how can we sort of be the GPS system for someone looking to make change, Um, meeting them where they are, being willing to sort of be flexible, rerouting 
with them along that pathway rather than the map that's like I need you to go over there I gave you the coordinates why aren't you there you know so looking at like how can I I am with you on this no matter how many wrong turns you take like I got you (laughs) it's like Dane's Mm -hmm. driving experience Mm -hmm. in the UK (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and like sometimes the GPS is like all right we're rerouting again and again (laughs) okay again you know but but it gets you there it figures it out. Well, you see, the funny thing about Google Maps is that when you don't have a data plan and you, because Google Maps will Ooh. hang on to the map for you, even if you're Ooh, not yeah. connected mm-hmm. to the internet. And so what's funny about that is when you think it might, it's connected to the internet, but it's not. And then you're like, oh, if mm-hmm. I just take a left here, it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And then you realize that left is into mm-hmm. oncoming traffic from an off ramp mm-hmm. onto the highway, which looked like a regular road, but it wasn't. Mm-hmm. So these things can have a minor impact on yep. your nervous system. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Not to say that happened to us, but you know, uh-huh. of no, no, no. if something yeah, yeah. like that happened. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. 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 I've never had any stressful driving experiences like that. So I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> exactly. Right. Perfect. <laughs> now, <laughs> So you, you also teach medical professionals and, and otherwise. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. What, what was the drive for these courses and, and what are some of the most prominent realizations that these, uh, these practitioners have, have had in those trainings? Yeah, so it's some of the thing, the work that I do has really specific drive of like, okay, trauma has been an area of specialty and I'm going to do work in that area. And there are other areas where it's along the way people have just been like, hey, will you come do a workshop or this seems relevant or I've worked with someone in a different type of setting and they asked me to come do something for their professional setting. And so sometimes things have kind of expanded in that way. Um, but my work with medical professionals initially started in that way of someone just being like, hey, will you come do something like this at my job because I think this would be useful. Um, and then it's kind of continued to expand throughout time. Like I had a very intensive medical year last year myself. I had shoulder surgery last February and a host of like very complicated complications afterwards and was like in and out of a hospital for a good portion of the year and kind of laid up on the couch. And uh. and so my, yeah, not, not a great time. And so my experience of, you know, the medical world has certainly expanded in kind of understanding and, and really recognizing like it, it's hard to work in the medical setting, because there's often lots of bureaucracy involved. There's not enough resources, not enough time, more patients than you have time to see in all of these pieces. And I think one of the things that can kind of be most impactful in those those types of settings is really understanding, like, what is the most effective way for me to do my job here that both serves the patient, but actually serves me too? So for example, there's a lot of studies around Um, people rating doctors in accordance with um, malpractice cases and that sort of thing. And and the doctors who are rating, who are having the least number of malpractice cases, really the biggest differences are just like, are they demonstrating empathy? Are they having the time to feel connected? Did the person just like like them as a human and really has nothing to do with their medical capabilities? And so it can be really interesting to sort of explore and look at like, what are the ways for an individual professional to get their needs met in terms of like getting their work done and then also be able to kind of harness some of these skills that make it easier for them to both do what they need to do and also to show up for the patient in a way where they still get to do what they need to do and like nobody's process is really compromised when they're able to kind of combine these things if that makes sense yeah yep yep yeah 
Well, especially because the medical setting itself doesn't really lend itself to the most uh, relaxing environment in general, Mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even just uh, like having been a patient multiple times and mm-hmm. having visited almost every hospital in Toronto. That's it. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just, <laughs> I can attest mm-hmm. to like the dramatic variance that there is mm-hmm. within even just like waiting rooms, but then also totally. how you're greeted and how quickly mm-hmm. are you even speaking to somebody <laughs> mm-hmm. or do you mm-hmm. feel like a number? <laughs> right. And it's incredible how important that empathy can be on both sides of that coin, mm-hmm. whether you're a medical professional and providing that empathy for the patient, or even how important empathy proves to be within the healing process. Totally. So. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And like, what are things that medical providers can do that help the patient know and see them as a real person too? You know, because I think that often people have had so many really challenging experiences in the medical realm. And, you know, naturally, generally, when we're moving into the medical world, it's because something's wrong, which means we're stressed and we want answers and we want things to be fixed and it's not comfortable. And so it's sort of a lot of times by the time we are entering a doctor's office, we're already kind of on guard. We're prepared to, you know, fight for ourselves. We don't trust that someone else is going to, and it sort of starts in this like antagonistic way. And so learning for medical professionals too, like, okay, how can I set the patient's ease down so that they're then on my side, which means they're going to increase their compliance in the medical treatment. They're going to perhaps be able to share more openly so I can actually diagnose them or give them, you know, figure out what's happening, give them the best kind of treatment they actually need. Um, There's a lot of kind of co-benefit that unfolds there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. When you're in a stressed out state, your ability to then communicate your issues clearly mm-hmm. and be heard are mm-hmm. all compromised. So it That's can start it. right from the get go before you've even, you've even met the professional you're speaking exactly. to. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, we found this with, I worked in, um, a couple, I worked in a couple ultra, ultrasound and x-ray clinics mm-hmm. and you have no idea whether the person is just coming for like, I don't know, uh, a, a like somewhat routine check. I don't think mm-hmm. you ever find yourself there routinely, but sure, hey, they're coming for something mm-hmm. positive like a pregnancy, or they're coming to find out whether they have a form of um like cancer or mm-hmm. a cyst or something. Like you have no idea. Um, so I think as a teenager in reception at clinics like that, it was incredibly beneficial because I mean I've been a patient a fair bit as well, but you know, you really have to set the tone of just even the way you speak and Mm -hmm. having not being monotone. Like people don't necessarily realize like that alone can put their nervous system completely Mm -hmm. on edge when you're met with someone who won't meet your eye Mm -hmm. or is monotone. Totally. So, so circus was definitely something that you just loved. Now, how Mm -hmm. did you think to say, you know what, I'm going to integrate something like circus into trauma therapy? Yeah. So yeah, I just loved circus um, and started doing it and and found it really kind of helpful and healing in my own sort of personal journey. So I think that kind of initially created some of that connection of like, wow, this has been a really powerful and empowering experience to kind of refine my own body in ways that I really needed to, but that wasn't necessarily easy to do in kind of traditional psychotherapy. So I think definitely my own experiences with that sort of created some of that foundation. And then um, in understanding and just teaching like kind of traditional, you know, mainstream circus for people that weren't necessarily coming for therapeutic benefits, but that 
we're really seeing the the shifts and the changes that happen for folks. And and I, I would say too that something that really is important as kind of a circle circus professional is that even if you're not working specifically like, okay, this is circus therapy and this is, you know, how this looks different than a traditional circus class, like we often know very little about our students who come in. And a lot of people are navigating trauma and sifting through you know, a lot of different intense life pieces and growth and shifts and changes. And, and so I found, I really found that I think because of some of my therapeutic background in teaching kind of traditional classes, I think I would end up sort of privy to more information than perhaps the traditional circus instructor, um, because people would know that piece of my background. So they might choose to share more. And because I found, um, I think with some of my approaches around kind of self-determination and talking specifically about the body and the nervous system as we were doing the things that we were doing, it sort of created a safe space for that to be a part of the class, even when it was just sort of a mainstream class. Um, And so I would say that it sort of started organically in that way and then kind of grew from there. And um, yeah, I started working also with some groups of kids from a residential treatment center who were in foster care and just really like finding and seeing the benefits of it while also understanding kind of the neurobiological impacts of this type of movement and expanding kind of the window of tolerance and finding challenges in a safe and supportive setting and kind of writing that line of, you know, mastery and pushing growth and that kind of thing. Um, Yeah. So I feel like it sort of unfolded in kind of a natural way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, what is it about inversion that like just changes mm-hmm. the brain and puts it into a different state for learning? It's wild. Right. It is. And it, I mean, I think it's, I think it's so many different things. Like, I think it's like, we don't, we don't usually go upside down when we're not kids on a playground, you know, like little kids do. And so I think that there's something about that that kind of harken ba- harkens back to old times. And I think it speaks also to that, like pushing ourselves and kind of finding that there's such a quick reward in circus of mastery and trying things and not necessarily like, oh, this is easy. I mastered this. But when a teacher is kind of appropriately scaffolding skills and like giving you things that you can find success with, there just really is this like progressing in stepping up and being like, I don't know if I could do that. That feels scary. I feel unsure about that. What's that going to be like? And then you do it. And there's sort of this elation of like, wow, I did this thing. I had success. Like I created this thing and if you're in a group setting people are generally really supportive so you've got this like group of people there right with you doing the same things and you know it just yeah it creates such a like magical kind of connection and opportunity that a lot of things in our lives don't in the same way yeah we we even think from like a we spoke to a friend who owned a studio in Australia and then we have a friend mm-hmm. who owns the studio as well and um just that sense of achievement but being yeah. in your body and it's not measured by any other metric that most right. people are used to measuring their health or their fitness by totally. it's so different to have mm-hmm. that skill acquisition yeah it's like a situation Absolutely. too where it's like okay that looks scary Um, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to put myself in that vulnerable position and then prove to myself that Mm -hmm. I can keep myself safe through that as well. Like there's there's a big psychological connection there. Yeah, there's so much. Exactly. And it's like, that's already so huge. If you look at trauma and like the patterns around like 
what does it mean to be safe? And like, what does it mean to feel some of perhaps some similar feelings that you felt before in traumatic or challenging situations, but they're now in a different context and that are sort of contained and have these like safety envelopes around them. And you've got a mat and you've got a coach and you've been progressively developing these skills. And yeah, it is, you know, I think we develop self-esteem through mastery of things. And it's just like so many repetitions to find little moments of mastery that you get to add together, which we don't get a lot in our regular normal people lives. True. <laughs> it's very true. Kids get it all the time, but That's we it. Find it beyond mm-hmm. that, it's kind of like, you know, you, you can definitely progress in a lot of areas in life, but it's not as pronounced. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's it. Right. And you maybe do the big work project or you do the whatever, but it's, you know, yeah, there's not the same sort of cycle and repetition of pushing and gaining and pushing and gaining. And Mm -hmm. yeah, and it's just fun. So that's also nice because it, you know, while you could do weight reps or something and that may feel satisfactory, you know, to go from five to 10 pounds or whatever, but, but it's just, it's a lot more fun to be upside down and and moving and learning tricks than it is to rep a weight at least in my world it is oh no we enjoy like yeah a strong a competitive strongman lifter and we both have Mm -hmm. loved our our lifting days for sure but we also do animal flow which is ground-based and really creative and you know Mm -hmm. you do have to be in your body and then we swim which usually I mean granted some could consider that monotonous but like you really do have to I mean, focus on your breathing and, you know, focus on how you're holding yourself within the water or you sink. And it's similar to, to circus. And I've walked into my sessions, like completely stressed to the nines from just Mm -hmm. whatever's been going on that day. And within five minutes, it's all gone. And I walk out like completely high because there's totally you can't think of anything else when you're Mm -hmm. hanging upside down by your knee or (laughs) whatnot. Yeah, and just to kind of follow up on that thought, just to the topic of breathing. Now, within what you do, whether that's in with trauma therapy or, or otherwise, do you focus on the breath much? I, I definitely do in kind of all of the d- different domains because I think that breath is something that is a very neuroceptive response system that changes a lot in response to what we're experiencing and we're not always in touch with what the changes are that are unfolding or what we want to do with that and even in kind of a traditional circus class setting one of the things that will happen particularly when teaching beginner folks but really all the time it's so common for people to hold their breath and just forget to breathe while they're doing things and so I feel like I, I've often joked actually that if I was teaching, I could just put like a, a background track on repeat that's like point your toes, breathe, point your toes, <laughs> yep. breathe, you know, you've got this. And just like have it playing like nonstop because I think that's like what I say more than anything is just like point your toes, breathe, engage, you know, like just so it is really, I think, a nice kind of pathway to that also where it's I think especially when we're looking at trauma but even in general it can be really challenging to ask someone to like oh develop a deep breathing practice or just sit here and breathe and for some people that can actually like really bring up panic or like places of like oh that puts me in my body in a way that I'm not comfortable with and so having sort of like the ability to introduce and kind of weave natural breathing in during 
an activity that is really an organic instruction given the activity you're doing because you're using your body can I, I find can really sort of create more of a system where your body's like oh yeah it's breathing thing right 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 like that's a thing that feels good and I like doing yeah so I watch breath a lot because everybody holds their breath a whole bunch when they're in the air for sure and it's just that innate stress response totally yeah and the exact opposite of what you need when you're like trying to use your body you know but it is just yeah it's exactly what happens yeah and we joke when you're upside down you're 50 percent dumber so I mean mm-hmm. if you can totally. breathe you can at least retain some of that intelligence to figure <laughs> out what absolutely. right and left are absolutely and ultimately the breath is I mean it's our our most available tool for changing our mood for switching us, like I said, from from mm-hmm. parasympathetic to sympathetic, we want to get into the nervous system stuff, but it's an actual tool that we have with us at all times. And it's the simplest and most effective way to change where our mind is going. So I'm sure that totally. again, within any type of training or trauma therapy, it's probably something that is ever prevalent. Absolutely. Right. And like coming, and it really is one of, it's a great tool to get into the body. And to refind that space. And if it's something that by itself is like hard, you know, makes it hard for someone to get into their body because of different experiences, finding that breath through movement is a really nice way. Um, and I, I, I talk a lot about sort of the idea that when we're in our body, like our body can only be like our physical body can only be in the present world. And like we can have physiological responses to things from the past, but it's like our body can't go into the future and it can't go into the past and so if we can get back into our physical present body in the space that we're in that is where we can find the now so if we're in the trauma reactive spaces where we're either in the future in a panic anxiety about anticipation or thinking about something or we're in the past and we're having the responses that are connected to the past if we can get back into like where is my present physical body and the safety that i'm having in this moment that can often be kind of a pathway for shifting and change. Mm-hmm. We we especially love doing that um, or love that you touched on that in the sense that like you don't have to just sit and, and meditate in order to mm-hmm. become more in tune with your breath or more in tune with your body. Mm-hmm. In fact, like movement is often – uh, for me personally, I'm biased in that regard. I have a very mm-hmm. hard time just sitting still, so I recognize my bias. But um, like even s- slower movements or gentler mm-hmm. movements um, have such a wonderful way of preventing that sort of dissociation feeling. And so that must be so, so powerful, especially for your clients to almost get reacquainted with their skin and their system. And then also mm-hmm. like within the context of circus reacquainted with like just how remarkable it is in terms of mm-hmm. acquiring new skill at literally any age um, totally. and any, any shape. Cause one of the things people don't realize is just how um, they, they see circus as something that like, well, obviously professionals are, are incredible at and they don't see all the stepping stones that can make it available. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the tools that you find you layer in first? Like, I know you have a, an emphasis in trapeze, for example, but um, like, do you go with silks first or is there just mixed modalities within your classes? Yeah. I mean, I think some of it depends on what people come in looking for. You know, we could definitely teach a bit of everything and some classes are sort of mixed, mixed sample, try it out, you know, taste a little bit of everything and sort of explore it. 
Um, but ultimately, I'm always looking. And, and of course, then some people come and are like taking just an intro to trapeze class. Um, but kind of regardless of what the apparatus or the discipline is, I'm always looking for like, what is the thing that this individual person or this group of people, depending on who it is that I'm working with, needs right now to find success with what this thing is. And so sometimes that looks like, okay, what are the skills, the concrete skills that we need to develop to do whatever this thing is, you know? So if you've got a certain trick or a skill, like, okay, well, what are the things that someone needs to do that successfully, which may even be ground skill pieces, you know, it may be going through things on the ground, or it may be looking at like building balance on the ground. Um, and then also looking at like, what do people need emotionally to go and have success with this? Because a lot of times there are things that people can physically do just fine, but there can be emotional pieces that are the part that's like harder of like, wow, that, that feels or looks really scary. Like I don't feel equipped or that's too much of a leap to kind of go from like I'm on the ground to going that high in the air and so then looking for like what are the ways that I can either shift an environment you know because I can lower a trapeze bar to be like you know six inches off the ground Mm -hmm. and what are the ways that I can create kind of the emotional felt sense of safety too to support that general sense of safety so that someone can access the sort of full potential of their physical body and ability by having some of that sense of safety created. And so a lot of that to me also does really come down to things like you mentioned of sort of like a finding meditative movement and just like ways to communicate really clearly and guide people, even in warmups and things to being like, what does it mean to be present with your body? And how do you give people space to like, yeah, check in with what else you need. And like, I'm going to roll my shoulders because I kind of feel that maybe check in with your shoulders, but also like notice like what's going on with your neck and what's going on with your head and like helping people kind of find their own rhythm and connection with their bodies rather than just performing like, okay, here's the warm up things I want from you. And really inviting kind of that dialogue and interchange between like, where is someone right now? And like, how, what is it that they need to feel plugged into them and me and other group members in the class, depending on, you know, what the setting is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I find that there's like a really wide range of scaffolding that I do in kind of the name of creating access and creating success and like possibility of finding success and satisfaction. Mm Mm-hmm. And just how different that is for each person. That's yeah. yeah. On the topic of nervous system safety, mm-hmm. I believe I, I read that within your system and your practice, you also dealt with eating disorder therapy. Mm-hmm. My background is in uh, nutrition. And in my experience, the psychological aspect is, I mean, I would argue more. It's more important mm-hmm. than the actual physical, like what mm-hmm. food is this that I'm choosing? And when it mm-hmm. comes to disordered eating, I mean, it's not about the food at all. Can you speak to this a little bit? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I think I agree with you definitely that it's like, whatever the things are that we're navigating, whether that's disordered eating or certain kind of all sorts of things, that it often isn't about whatever that sort of superficially looks like it is. And of course, there are times where it's like, okay, there's a health problem that needs to be addressed in terms of uh, health being compromised because of food intake or lack of food intake, et cetera. But I find that one of the things that is kind of a common root among, you know, with eating disorders, with trauma, with depression, with anxiety, is often the way that both these things come from 
a disconnection with physical self and also kind of breed a disconnection from physical self and kind of create these spaces and these kind of wars and put us at odds with our body. And so I think, you know, a lot of what I think about in these domains is like, what are ways to refine ourselves through all kinds of different modalities, whether that's the improv theater, whether that's circus, whether that's just movement in general, and how can we begin to like just re-experience ourselves in a way that it, that is outside of the paradigm of whatever the struggle is? Because I think part of what happens with a lot of disorders and challenges and things that folks are navigating is that we end up kind of driving sort of in circles around this like roundabout that we just can't exit. And it's like, we're in this thing and it's like, this is the pattern that's playing out and I feel this way. So this thing happens and that thing happens. So I feel this way and it just kind of keeps cycling. and. So a lot of times I think about sort of this idea of like, what are, what are the different ways to exit that roundabout? And like, where are different pathways off of that? Or even ways to like change lanes and continue driving in the circle. And so to me, one of the big pieces, you know, with kind of thinking about eating disorders through this lens is looking for like, what does it mean to have a space to define a relationship with the body that does exist outside of the pattern in that circle driving that exists for someone in the realm of that eating disorder, which is going to look different for everyone, like whatever their sort of their patterns and their thoughts and the different emotional pieces that come up with that. And I, I find that a lot of times like these alternative types of modalities is sort of like an opportunity to come in the side door of like a house of healing and a house of finding new space with yourself where it's like, we often, I think, want to drive cognitively and like address whatever seems to be the problem on the surface level and so we're trying to come in that front door where it's like oh someone has disordered eating so we should address like the food intake we should address these things and and of course there are like medical components around those that definitely need to be addressed and are true Um, but I find that sometimes when someone is in or is even doing that work like in an eating disorder clinic and getting the medical support there, it can be really challenging to find new pathways to connect with themselves when all of their work is centering around sort of those, mm-hmm. the medical model treatments that, that can, can be really necessary. Um, and so looking for like, yeah, what is the side door? What is a way to help you enjoy and find your body that's like separate? It's so different than the things that you've been doing with it previously and that you are doing that it's like you're coming in the side door, like you almost don't even realize you're doing it. And then suddenly you're in the house and you're like, oh. Huh. that's cool like wow um this is a good place you know and yeah so I thought it that way where it's like the front door is an important door and like needs to keep being figured out but like sometimes I do think that it's easier to come in the side door and unlock it from the inside you know and like yeah so looking for the side doors that's a great way to put it and yeah. I love that because you know the front door is like very much in that specific context it's you know, the person who's in a clinic and being weighed every single day mm-hmm. and having right. blood drawn every single day, right. very metric based. And it's, it's mm-hmm. life-saving, mm-hmm. right? In the sense they have. Totally. Important. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it, it is not, um, it's more just like, yeah, figuring out what the, uh, the baseline measures of staying alive are rather than mm-hmm. like thriving and right. healing from it. Yeah. Right. Like finding joy in your body, in when you're doing that, yeah, all of those medical pieces is really hard. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, finding like, what are these places? And, and I think that for a lot of people, that is exactly what 
circus ends up being without them realizing like a lot of people come because they're like oh I'm just gonna take this fun class because my friend did or it looks cool or like this studio opened by me and then they get in there and are like wow this is changing my life and I'm plugged into this community and I want to keep going back and like this is so important and significant and people don't always even really realize entirely why but I think a lot of that is really about the parts of us that it just sort of deeply feeds and deeply Mm -hmm. kind of heals and like helps us kind of access new parts of ourselves and kind of find that integration and these connections of disparate, you know, ideas and parts of ourselves to come together in a way that doesn't happen in a lot of other domains. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the the thing is not the thing. The thing is the thing that gets you the thing, right? (laughs) That's it. That's exactly it. So it's really, it's just finding a way to get outside of mm-hmm. your mindset mm-hmm. and do something that you really enjoy. It's like, well, how did you get over mm-hmm. your YouTube tour? Oh, I joined, I did circus. It's great. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. well, like, how is that the answer? But it yeah. makes right. total sense. Yeah. Right. And just leaning into, I think it just speaks to, to like leaning into what feels good. And like, I think socially the world is often so so wrapped up in metrics and like what's the right thing that we're supposed to be doing and like you know all the way from from work to relationships to you know like there's all of these like standards around like what makes someone a quote-unquote like valid and good person and I I think a lot of that just isn't yeah it's not set up in the way that really supports people doing the things that they want and finding the things and so really recognizing you know, I talk with people a lot about like, find the thing that feels good and like name it and lean in and like start small. Cause sometimes people are like, I don't even know what that means. Like my job is stressful, my whatever. And I'm like, that might mean that you like a certain tea and just naming to yourself, like I love mint tea and then making yourself a cup of it every day. And like doing those little things start kind of unlocking this new pathway of like acknowledging I exist and I get to exist and I'm going to do things for myself that support that. And it's, yeah, it's simple, but it's yeah. things start moving, you know. Oh, that's great. And it it that's I laughed at the tea thing because um after a friend got a divorce, uh she was arguably like you know, going through changes, we'll put it, mm-hmm. we'll put it that way. There's totally. no way to put it. Obviously, uh like for her she was super happy, but she also felt a little bit lost and I had mm-hmm. been living so much in a way that someone else was dictating so how about you figure out and I said her name I'm like how about you figure out what so-and-so likes to Mm -hmm. have to drink in the morning Mm -hmm. (laughs) like you know just Mm -hmm. start small and like make it about you not oh I'm having this cappuccino because that's what right other person does so I got into their habits like all those little things carry such Mm -hmm. an impact in terms of how we feel we're just just, as much as they are simple choices they are really important and they're part of who we are and what makes us tick totally Mm -hmm. um so we have a few wrap-up questions that we always ask our guests um what is the most impactful book you've read in the last year Ooh, interesting. In the last year ish. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh, that's so tough. Um, you can mm, also pick that's... a couple, or just that you like really enjoy. Yeah, Freya likes it when people name like twelve or thirteen books, okay, and then we cool. get twelve or thirteen books on our doorstep. <laughs> cool, right? Um, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I've been. I, I read a lot of fiction, and I read a, read a lot of like brain therapy kinds yeah. of books. Um, and so I really, I, 
have a handful of especially the brain books that I go back to a lot. Um, I really love being a brain wise therapist. Um, it's a Bonnie Badenoch book um, and it's kind of rooted in our personal neurobiology and is kind of all about recognizing what is happening in the brain and how that relates specifically to kind of the interplay between in the therapeutic relationship. Um, I will say like, even if you're not a therapist, I guess I can't fully say because I am, but I think even if you weren't a therapist, it's a good read and an interesting read. Like, I think that it's, it's something that, yeah, is a, is a good book for understanding different layers. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And I always read and love all Dan Siegel everything um such yeah just really good good work for dan siegel i've been rereading a lot of peter levine read the porges the the fatter bigger polyvagal theory book not the abbreviated one this year um which was very dense um but great you know um yeah so it's hard to say like the most impactful and yeah i've been reading some donna haraway who's a philosopher and yeah, fiction books. So, yeah, I mean, a little bit of everything, but I guess I would say, like, yeah, the being a brainwise therapist is probably the, the one that I go back to a lot a and lot, just yeah. always enjoy. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. We, we certainly have a lot of those books. Like, I go back to Deutsche mm-hmm. books all the time mm-hmm. or Feldenkrais mm-hmm. books all the time. Mm-hmm. They, you know, the biomechanical model of movement and coaching is not totally efficient. So, mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. the brain parts of it. Totally. <laughs> Now, further to that, what is your non-negotiable daily self-care tool or habit? Mm, That's a really good question. I would say, and this is, I guess, a fairly big answer, but I would say some form of carving out time that I get to decide in the moment what I want it to be and what I want to do with it. Um, Because I there's lots of things that I do that are self-care, you know, like being on a trapeze is self-care training is self-care. But there are also things that are scheduled often. And there are times where it feels harder or it's more in the name of cultivating a practice than feels like the complete restorativeness that I need or want it to. And, and so I find like having a set of a chunk of time that sometimes is varying in lengths, depending on what the day is um, where I just get to ask myself, what do I want to do right now? Like what feels good? What would feel restorative? What's unstructured right playtime? Unstructured playtime. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Unstructured playtime. I honestly think that mm-hmm. every single human I know would be healthier mm-hmm. if they had unstructured playtime in their totally. day. Totally. Right. And because it, yeah, it just, it all gets so structured and it gets like, okay, well I go to work and then I go to the gym and well, that's for me. And then I make a dinner that I like and well, that's for me too. But it's like, yeah, but it's still a thing that you're, doing and it's scheduled and sometimes that feels great and is good and it is important but yeah agreed unstructured playtime <laughs> yeah. we're big fans of that yeah. mm-hmm. um if you had five minutes with someone what one thing would you try and impart to help their well-being hmm. gosh I mean I almost think it would be figuring out like what where is it that you feel passionate and alive and like, what are the experiences that you've had that come to mind when you think about like, when have I been most passionate? When have I been most alive and inspired? And where can you add in more of that or the things that you can take and understand from the things that come to mind as those times that you identify into the present 
world because I, I think that it is we get into patterns in our daily lives and we get used to just like the things that I should be doing and want to be doing. And I think taking sort of stock of, yeah, what, what feels really good and am I doing that? And where can I do more of what feels really good? Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's so basic and yet so often hard and not done. Yeah. yeah you nailed that. I mean, in my coaching practice, I'm told that often mm-hmm. by, by mm-hmm. my clients, it's like, right. It's so simple and so basic, but I don't do it. I'm like, yeah, but, right. we but we don't make time for it and That's you have it. to make time for it. That's it. Exactly. Um, so finally in light of COVID, where can people find you? Yeah. Um, I would say yesandbrain.com is a great uh, location to find me. And that has kind of all the info. And I'm that on Instagram, also at yesandbrain and also facebook.com slash yesandbrain. My email is yesandbrain at Gmail. So I make it very easy on people to find me. Um, Yeah. And I've got a lot of different kind of online things going in lots of different domains and new stuff rolling out every month in terms of courses and online meetups and workshops and pre-recorded things and yeah everything's kind of continuing to expand so that's a good place to find me oh that's excellent so people can find you and attend classes or book time or something totally excellent it's flexing with the time because we have no idea when things will be lifted but it doesn't have to put everything on pause for sure exactly yeah yeah and it's been you know the part of it that has been really beautiful is like man, I've been hosting workshops with people. I had a workshop the other day and like someone from the Philippines was there. Someone from India was there. There were folks from Europe, folks from Australia, folks in Canada and the US. Like it was just like, what a really beautiful moment, you know, that wouldn't have necessarily happened like this in a different time. And so absolutely, I'm, yeah, I'm enjoying those pieces of like the really creative uniqueness in this existence we're living. Yeah. And the, yeah. the broader connectivity, that's really, yeah. cool. we've had that experience with, um, mm-hmm. with animal flow. Cause I, I teach for mm-hmm. animal flow. And although I've, I've taught one course that was technically in Hong Kong, but obviously while here and people were scattered kind of all over, we had someone from New Zealand on it and it's mm-hmm. just wild. Cause even had we been able to travel back to Hong Kong, not all of those people would have been there. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it. Like the world is simultaneously more and less accessible than it's ever been in certain ways. <laughs> and it's like a very interesting thing. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. More and less. Yep. <laughs> more and less. And I think that that is a beautiful place to end this on, mm-hmm. thinking that we are now more connected than we ever have been. So Lacey, thank you so much for joining us on the Move Daily Health Podcast. And we'll see everyone next time. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more, head on over to Stitcher or iTunes and subscribe to the Move Daily Health Podcast. And don't hesitate to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.